If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. And if in 1267 you looked out of the window, according to the Hundred Rolls, you would have seen the Sheriff of Essex uh, attempting to release cockerels with incendiary bombs attached to them, which he was going to drop on London and cause a fire in support of the Earl of Gloucester. That was Dan Jones talking about a curious moment in the Plantagenet era. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast with me, Rob Attar. This podcast is brought to you by the team behind BBC History magazine, which is the UK's best-selling history magazine. You can find it in all good news agents and on subscription. Plus we have a Kindle edition available on the Amazon website and an iPad edition on the Apple newsstand. You can get more details of all of this plus great subscription offers on our website, which is historyextra.com. And if you have any comments about the podcast or any of our other products, you can get in touch with us through email, podcast at historyextra.com, on Twitter, at History Extra, or on Facebook, forward slash History Extra. Earlier this year, we ran a series of lectures at the Tower of London. For the second of those events, historians Dan Jones and Susanna Lipscomb argued the importance of the Tudor and Plantagenet dynasties. In this week's episode, we're broadcasting Dan Jones' talk on the Plantagenets. Just before we begin, we have a brief advert. Be part of the British Academy's brand new Modern History Week in November 2012 in association with BBC History magazine. The Making and Breaking of States are three lectures exploring how countries are perceived, broken and created with renowned academics including Professor Mark Mazower from Columbia University. Register now to attend British Academy free events and the Modern History Week at www.britac.ac.uk forward slash events. 
And now over to Tower and Dan Jones. I was coming here today uh, and thinking about what the Tower would have been like in the Plantagenet years and what London would have been like and trying to imagine, you know, this, this, this square mile, kind of the you know, hundreds church spires sticking up from it, the, the great wall around it. Um, you know, the, the, uh, the nascent banking industry and um, the lawyers and the merchants um, and the, the, the royal palaces and, and the tower looming over it, you know, the great Norman tower looming over it and, and being adapted. You know, we came through the gate today that was, that was built and, uh, in 1280 and Edward I. And I thought of I thought one unusual thing you might have seen if you'd, if you'd been in the tower in 1267 and looked out of a window, looking east probably. Um, and this would have been a time of war, a time when Henry III and Edward I uh, were, were defending the capital against, against the Earl of Gloucester, who's in rebellion. Uh, and we know this from the Hundred Rolls, or rather we have this recorded in the Hundred Rolls, which was a sweeping inquiry Edward I made um, at the beginning of his reign. Second only really to Doomsday Book in terms of, uh, of an inquiry about, about the state of England. And if in 1267 you looked out of the window, according to the Hundred Rolls, you would have seen the Sheriff of Essex uh, attempting to release cockerels with incendiary bombs attached to them, which he was going to drop on London and cause a fire in support of the Earl of Gloucester. Now, I'm not sure how successful sending roosters as fire bombers would have been. You've probably been safe in the tower. Uh, I'm not sure if a rooster can really fly very far, <laughs> which is the first flaw in the plan, and I'm certainly not sure it could fly very far carrying anything emitting substantial flame. So I've no idea. You, you may have seen the Sheriff of Essex attempting to do this. Anyway, that's one of the, the more unusual things that you might have seen in the Plantagenet Tower. You would have seen many other things in the Plantagenet Tower, many of them quite grisly. You would have seen in 1283 the head of Daffith Ap Griffith, the last independent prince of Wales, stuck on a spike outside the tower, as indeed many heads were over the years. He was executed by Edward I after rebelling against the crown, um, and this led to the conquest of Wales. If you were here in 1323, you might have seen, in the dead of night, that is, uh, you might have seen Roger Mortimer of Wigmore, who was the lover of, of Queen Isabella, Edward II's wife, escaping from a window onto a boat to escape from, from jail. Three years later, he'd return and he'd assist Isabella and Edward III in forcing Edward II to abdicate. You would have seen his escape if you were here in 1323. If you were here in 1341, you'd have seen Edward III returning from the first stages of the Hundred Years' War on a boat, again in the dead of night, in November, after a rough crossing of, of the Channel. And you've seen him in a, in a rage coming off the boat and coming into, into the tower to start berating his government and trying to purge it of everyone who he thought was keeping him starved of money and, and leading to the early stages of the English war effort, leading to, to founder. If you were in 1381, you would have seen Richard II, a boy king, standing in a tower, looking out, uh, and a massive rebellion, the greatest popular rebellion that ever happened in England. Um, rebels from Essex and Kent descending on the capital, burning buildings, getting drunk, looting, destroying, attempting to behead lawyers and Flemish merchants, causing total chaos and bringing medieval England to the brink of revolution. Richard II trapped here with his government, 
um, staring out at the chaos. And the next day, uh, the rebels would break into the tower here and drag out Simon Sudbury, the Archbishop of Canterbury, and, uh, and Robert Hales, the treasurer, and behead them on Tower Hill. And if you're here in 1399, at the end of the Plantagenet years, you'd have seen Richard again, older, uh, no less despondent, uh, imprisoned by his cousin, Henry Bolingbroke. Um, and, and his deposition was imminent. And the end of the Plantagenet years were nigh. Um, and, and this actually, this is my favourite scene from Plantagenet England, or certainly this is my favourite involving the Tower, because we have an eyewitness account of Richard, last of the Plantagenets, in his cell. And we know this from Adam of Usk, the chronicler. Adam of Usk came to dinner one night with Richard. Adam was a Lancastrian sympathiser, so a delegation had been sent to assess Richard's state of mind. And, uh, and Adam Russ came to this dinner, and, and they had dinner with Richard, and he was very gloomy. Um, and after dinner, Adam says, Richard sat there and started moping, and going on and on, sort of unbelievably, about all the kings of England who'd been stabbed in the back and screwed over by their people and, and destroyed by the country, and his ancestors who'd been ruined by England. Um, and this story makes its way into Shakespeare, into the Henriad, into Richard II. And Shakespeare, through a slightly dilatory course, uses Adam as a source via Hollandshed. And he gives Richard these words, which are very, very true to life, you know, almost exactly what Usk reports uh, Richard is saying, but in, in this beautiful Shakespearean passage, and he has Richard say, For God's sake, let us sit upon the ground and tell sad stories of the death of kings, how some have been deposed, some slain in war, some haunted by the ghosts they have deposed some poisoned by their wives, some sleeping killed, all murdered, for within the hollow crown that rounds the mortal temples of the king keeps death his court. Which I think is beautiful. It's a very Game of Thrones, right? This is, this is the image we have of Plantagenet England, which is kings being destroyed by their barons or rebelled against by their people and executed and poisoned by them and screwed over. But it's not very Plantagenet. It's not very Plantagenet. It's true of the Wars of the Roses, and as uh, Susanna might tell us later, it might be true of the Tudors as well. But it's not very Plantagenet. Because in the ten years I've been thinking about the Plantagenets and, and studying the Plantagenets, actually, this isn't a dynasty that was constantly at war with their own people. This was a dynasty that, that created far more than it, than it destroyed or was destroyed. And what I want to show you over the next, God, I've gone on a bit, so probably half an hour, um, is the Plantagenets were a dynasty who made the most profound and important contribution to English history in almost every area, in politics, constitution, the economy, culture, architecture, arts, building, international relations. They, they were at the heart of the formation of what we now think of as England. But before we get into that, really, we should ask, who were the Plantagenets? Um, and that is a question I find myself, having written this, this big book on the Plantagenets, having to answer quite a lot, because unmistakably people know who the Tudors were. Um, but whenever I say, you know, you say, oh, I'm writing a book, oh, that's good, what's it about? It's about the Plantagenets, and you just, just people's face kind of go a little blank, they go, they're the... Uh, plan, yeah, the Plantagenets. And I go, oh, right. You know, some people shorten it. You know, my um, publicity director calls them the Planties, for short. Uh, my friends call them the Plantains. And I think, no, the Plantains. Um, 
so I've just come down to say, well, look, if you think about the Tudors, and everyone goes, oh, Jonathan Rhys-Myers, yeah, okay, I've seen that show. Just move it back, and it's the dynasty before. But I think that's doing the Plantagenets a disservice, because between 1154 and 1399, which I'll explain why I define the Plantagenets uh, thus in a minute, um, between 1154 and 1399, so much that I like to call part of the historical canon happened. And when, when you start thinking about everything that happened in this period, you really start to understand that this was the formative period in English history. You know, it, just the names are evocative. Beckett, the Third Crusade, Magna Carta, the Barons' Wars, Conquest of Scotland, or the attempted Conquest of Scotland, I should say, the Conquest of Wales, Edward II and Piers Gaveston, Hundred Years' War, the Order of the Garter, the Black Death, the Peasants' Revolt, the Deposition of Richard... The all of this is, is part of the, uh, the Plantagenet story. And the same is true of, of the names of the men and women who were who involved in this story. Henry II and Eleanor of Aquitaine, Richard the Lionheart, Bad King John, Simon de Montfort, Eleanor of Castile, Isabella, the she-wolf of France, the Black Prince and Joan of, Joan of Kent, his wife, John of Gaunt, and so on. And then, then the buildings, the cathedrals, the castles, the, the new towns which were... Which, emerged during the Plantagenet years. These incredible shrines, tombs, monuments, that, that, some of which still stand, although some of which the Tudors knocked down, so thanks for that. Um, the myths and legends, uh, you know, Robin Hood and the Outlaw Tales, King Arthur, the emergence of this great mythology of Arthur, um, St George, the birth of English vernacular as a language of poetry and, and great literature. All of this is part of the Plantagenet story. But let's ask, let's ask the immediate question, who were the Plantagenets? Where did they come from? Well, there are three strains in the original sort of Plantagenet broth of blood. They come from three, three main places. The first is Geoffrey of Anjou, Geoffrey Plantagenet, the only one of the Plantagenets to actually use the name Plantagenet in his own lifetime. Um, and many sort of characteristic things of the Plantagenet family, the red hair, you know, you can see these, these lions on the, on the shield, which became part of, part of um, the English coat of arms, you know, the, the, the leopards, the lions, Passangada. Um, you know, the sword in his hand, this is a, a, a great sort of warrior dynasty. Um, he's described by John of Marmoutier as, as being bumptious, which I think is a, sort of a sycophant's way of saying he's a pain in the arse. Um, you know, he's an irrepressible soldier, but a soldier. He comes from the, the, the Counts of Anjou, who are fearsome warriors, uh, said to be descended from the devil. And there's a great story about, uh, uh, you know, in fact, the endless folks of Anjou who've done ghastly things, you know, burning their wives at the stake for copping off with a goat herd. And um, one of them is supposed to be in bed with the devil and flies out the window and she's finally forced to go to church. You know, this is an irrepressible, soldierly, partly evil kind of blood. Okay. On the other part of the family, you have, you have Henry I of England, who's the son of, of William the Conqueror. And um, Henry is the Duke of Normandy, uh, as well as a, a King of England. So from a, a dynasty of, of, kind of new to kingship, but, but also soldiers, but more of a, more of a schemer, more of a sort of diplomat. Um, you know, th and so there's always, he's, he's the politician. There's a politician, there's a politician strain in, in Plantagenet plot. And then within the family as well, you have Eleanor of Aquitaine, who marries into the family and brings vast swathes of territory in, in southwest France, which 
for a long time, until the mid-Tudor mid period, I think I'm right in saying, uh, part of... Um, part of England and, and the links between Bordeaux and England are very strong. And so territorially that comes from Eleanor but there's also a poetic strain in the Plantagenet blood which comes from Eleanor. You know, she, she comes from a line of troubadour dukes and, and you have as well as the, the soldierly nature and the, the diplomacy you have within Plantagenet blood something kind of romantic and chivalric and it comes out across the generations. So these, these are the three sort of strands that I think are within Plantagenet blood. They emerge in the first king, Henry II, who's the son of Geoffrey of Anjou and the grandson of Henry I through his mother, and the husband of Eleanor of Aquitaine. And Henry's reign is, is notable for a number of things, but uh, probably most of all, his great dispute with Becket. This is Becket here. Best friends of the king until he becomes Archbishop of Canterbury. Um, and this furious row erupts between them, and, and you, have, you have one of the most famous and, and brutal arguments ever in, in the whole corpus of English history, which ends, as we know, in 1170 with Becket's head mashed on the floor in Canterbury Cathedral and Henry, the sort of pariah of Europe, a position from which almost nobody except for Henry, who's a, a, a conquering king, but more of a politician and a lawyer than anything else, that only Henry probably could have weaseled his way out of. Henry's reign is also notable for his furious arguments with his wife, Eleanor, and with his, three, his four sons, Henry, Richard, who would be Richard Lionheart, Geoffrey, and John. If you've seen The Lion in Winter, you'll have seen sort of characterised. Um, his first great achievement is to bring an end to the anarchy, which has consumed England under Stephen and his mother, Matilda. Um, and I think what, what's so important about the beginning of the, of the Plantagenet years is that finally is settled the, the very brittle form of government uh, that the Dukes of Normandy had established over England at the conquest. There'd been about 100 years of Norman rule over England, and really it's, it's a colonial aristocracy who've parceled up England, uh, people with castles and mercenaries. And it's, it, it's been a brittle form of rule which has, which has fallen apart with Stephen's accession. You've had 20 years. The shipwreck, contemporaries called it. We, we tend to call it the anarchy now. Uh, but Henry inherited the crown as a sort of deal to end the anarchy and partly elected as king and partly his blood right through his mother. But his first great achievement was to bring real order and stable government to England. Um, he married Eleanor Aquitaine and, and, and then made the English crown a vital part of continental politics. You know, it's, it's the most powerful, probably the largest empire, people, contemporary said, since Charlemagne. So he rules everywhere from you know, the lowlands of Scotland right down to the Pyrenees. And he's, he's combined the, the Kingdom of England with Duchy of Normandy, County of Anjou, Duchy of Aquitaine. And this is just this enormous territorial expanse, which he, he moves around at great pace, governing with sort of incredible energy. And so it's a, a big territorial achievement. Um, and the, the story of defending that empire, really, if you want to call it an empire, which some people make quibble with, but the story of defending that empire is the story of Henry's reign. Um, he's most famous for Becket, as I've said, but really Henry's great achievement is, is in, in or his great lasting achievement is in establishing a system of law, administration and government over England, which has affected us to this day. You know, the origins of the common law can, I think, 
be, uh, you know, unmistakably be found in, in Henry's reign. You have the development of some very important processes of government, bureaucratic processes, by which royal government is extended to the localities in England. Um, some government becomes, necessarily because Henry's governing such a wide expanse, government becomes bureaucratic in the, in the first form of the word. You know, a system of writs, which are basic forms of government, is established where you can have the king's law without necessarily having the king himself. And government becomes a machine, an administrative set of processes, which can operate with the, with the king, but more often will oper operate without the king. And the origins of the common law, and a law that evolves, and a law that's, that's based around administrative systems, can be found in, in Henry's reign. And that, which I'll talk a little bit more about in a minute, is, is the great achievement, I think, of, of Henry, or the lasting achievement. He makes England a sort of coherent, well-governed realm with, with immense importance across Europe. Then we have Henry's sons, Richard the Lionheart. Um, curiously, curiously the king who has a statue outside Parliament at the moment, despite being probably the least English king in our history. Certainly a king who had very little interest in being in England and was almost never in England. But at the same time, one of the greatest soldiers in, in medieval history, probably in, in, in European history, um, the hero of the Third Crusade, um, a, a great sort of paragon of chivalry, and, and here he is fighting a duel with, this is Saladin with a blue face for some reason, um, a duel that never happened by the way, they were in the, the Holy Land at the same time but never met in person enormously, respected each other enormously. Um, and Richard's, Richard's achievement was that of a soldier. He drained England of, of cash, uh, mainly to pay his ransom when he was captured on the way back from crusade. But he, he did give English kingship a form of military legend. He's a, he's a legend in his own lifetime, and, and very swiftly afterwards, all of his descendants, probably with the exception of his brother, um, idolise Richard and, and create around Richard this myth of martial kingship, which lasts uh, centuries. You know, and, and you could even argue it lasts this day that the idea that kings and princes should be great warriors. You know, if you look at William and Harry today, both of whom have a very strong interest in in fulfilling the soldierly duty of of if not kingship in, in Harry's case, then of of being royal. That you can trace all the way back to the, the deeds of of Richard and the Third Crusade. Then we have his brother John, who um, is known as Bad King John, and lots of people will try and tell you he wasn't that bad, he was a great administrator. He was a, a ghastly, <laughs> ghastly individual, I'm afraid, that you can't revise John. John was, yes, um, a very good administrator. They were some of the cruelest people in history, I think, have been very good administrators, very efficient at following, you know, carrying out orders. Um, John is a legalist, he's a lawyer by training, he's been brought up and trained as a lawyer. Um, and he thinks, you know, he develops the English law, um, which backfires on him somewhat. Uh, he's a very cruel individual, even by the standards of the age. Look, his brother's cruel. His brother's responsible for the death of 3,000 people, just dragged out to the plains in the Third Crusade and executed. But John, John has a sort of uh, a very personal touch to his cruelty. So, um, you know, his, his rival, brief rival for the throne, Arthur of Brittany, he um, probably kills with his own hands. 
in when he's drunk. Um, you know, the, the wife of one of his en enemies, he, he puts in prison with their eldest son and starves them to death. And when their, their bodies are found, their teeth marks, they try to eat each other. He's a, really not a very nice guy. Um, he terrorised pretty much everyone. Terrorised his barons. He terrorised the Welsh. He terrorised the Scots. Um, pretty much the only people he didn't terrorise were the French. And, and, and Philip II, Philip Augustus, the great... French king, uh, relieved John of Normandy in 1204, which is an incredibly significant event in English history. You know. um, 1066 is important, but uh, you, know, you can argue that 1204 is even more important because the division and the final division between England and Normandy, which point the channel, separates England from the continent more than it, more than it joins it to the continent is vitally important, and, and the barons who'd come over as settlers and were Anglo-Norman are forced to, to pick sides in John's reign. Are you, are you English or are you from Normandy? And so despite the sort of egregious badness of this man, his reign has profound, profound um, importance in the, the history of Englishness. And you, you, you start to develop a sense of English national conscience. Now, what you also have when John loses Normandy is a king who's around all the time which you haven't had under Henry II and Richard. Um, and not a great person to be around all the time, um, to be touring the country and getting involved in legal cases and, uh, and trying to drain the country of, of money for him to spend himself. And as we know, in John's reign, this, this ends in civil war. And out of the civil war comes a peace treaty. And that peace treaty in 1215 is Magna Carta. Um, Magna Carta at the time is a peace treaty that is a total failure. It doesn't stop the war, in fact it exacerbates the war. But Magna Carta is, without question, the most important document. It's a founding document of English constitutionalism. And I'm not putting that forward as a Whiggish argument to say that everything is in one sort of neat line from Magna Carta through to the liberty that we enjoy today. But Magna Carta, within a generation of it being issued, has become iconic. Iconic for the ideas that it sums up, which, which can be reduced to one simple principle, which is the king should obey the law that he makes. So, this is John. Henry III, John's son, takes the, takes the throne after John's death, um, when he's very young, and England's engulfed in civil war, and, the, and Prince Louis, the Lion of France, is invaded and is trying to take the throne for himself. So he has bad starts, and things don't get a great deal better for Henry. His reign is, is consumed by arguments surrounding the ideas behind Magna Carta. Um, engulfed for about a decade in the middle of it with a, in an enormous war with his barons um, and an opposition movement led by Simon de Montfort. Um, and Henry doesn't. He, doesn't he, he tries in vain to recapture Normandy, to recapture some of the lands that were lost by his father in France, and... He's not up to the task. He's not up to the task of domestic government. He's not up to the task of, of um, military reconquest. He has difficult circumstances, no doubt. Um, whenever things get difficult for Henry, he tends to sort of just disappear and go on a little tour of his favourite shrines and kind of go, oh, relics. And, and, and he has a sort of wandering and, and slightly frivolous mind. Um, things come to, come to a very bad point for him when he announces that when England is almost broke 
and uh, his wars are going incredibly badly. He's, he comes to his baron and says, I've got a great deal, struck a deal with the Pope. Uh, my son can become the king of Sicily. This is great. It's only, only going to cost £150,000, which is sort of the equivalent of a saying, you know, we're in the age of austerity, but we've got a great deal. You can have the kingdom of Sicily joined to the kingdom of England. It's only going to cost us... 150 billion. You know, it, it's, it's insanity. Anyway, he's not, a, he's not a very capable king, but what he is very capable at is appearing to be a king. And you can see him here. Um, so, dressed in his family, holding a building. He's a great builder, and he's, he remodels Westminster Abbey and begins, and its foundation becomes, it becomes a mausoleum to kingship. His hero, he's the first person to, to drag Edward the Confessor out of simple history and, and make him make him a hero or make him a sort of a hero of of, of English history um, he has his relics translated and the enormous tomb that you can still see in Westminster Abbey um, is, is built uh, under Henry's instruction and they have these great ceremonies and the 13th of October which is St Edward's Day becomes very important ceremonially in the history of, of English kingship but he's he's very good on pageantry of kingship, whereas the generation before him and Henry II, you know, they're, they're, they're not, they travel a lot and they're not very into the sort of regalia of kingship, but this is, this is Henry's forte and he's very good on the sort of outward display of kingship which, and, and monarchy, which I think we can agree and we'll see on the Diamond Jubilee is still, um, still very much there at the heart of monarchy, outward display. Um. So that's Henry. Henry has succeeded sort of un in an unlikely fashion, actually, by, um, by a son who is probably one of the most fearsome soldiers um, ever to wear the crown. Edward I, Hammer of the Scots, Conqueror of the Welsh. Very tall, I consider a good thing. There's long shanks by the Scots. She stands almost six feet tall, which is very, very tall by the standards of the day. Uh, has a lisp, but that doesn't stop him being capable, supposedly, of shouting so loudly at somebody that he scares them literally to death. Wouldn't we like to do that? He brutally executes, as I said to you at the beginning, um, the last Prince of Wales and builds, fortifies Snowdonia, northern Wales, uh, with this enormous ring of castles, which still stands there today, you know, the symbol of English dominance over Wales. Co-opts at the same time the Welsh myths of Arthur as, as a sort of ancient king of, of the Britons who, who comes from Wales and will reconquer. Edward, Edward has a look at this and says, well, thank you very much, I'll take that for the English kingdom. And... Uh, these brutal wars of conquest in Wales have two effects. On the first hand, they, they, they put English power over, over Wales and English government processes. But they also, uh, on the flip side of this, create amongst the Welsh a, sort of resistant, a sense of resistance to English rule and a sense of um, you know, uh, hatred of English rule. Now, Suzanne, I'm sure, will tell you that there is more to the story of, of English dominance over Wales than simply Edward I, but if you, this is where the story really begins and this is where the English kings put their first hard stamp onto Wales, and that's something that's still, still going on today. More explicitly, what we have today is uh, a movement that's connected with Edward's other wars of conquest, which are in Scotland. Um, it's Edward who in, uh, in 1290 begins an attempt to conquer Scotland, um, or certainly to smash the power of the Scottish crown so far that it's forever subject to English power. 
and he removed the stone of Scone from Scone Abbey in 1296 and it only took 700 years to get it back. Um, Tony Blair gave it back, which was, that was good. Uh, um, but it used to sit underneath the coronation chair and, you know, if you want to look at the history of tension between Scots and English, so much of it, so much of it goes back to Edward, you know, his haughty, arrogant uh, approach to his dealings with Scotland um, left a mark um, which has never really been erased and we'll find out in a couple of years time whether the, the whole process of English and Scottish Union which began under Edward um, will end under Alex Salmond. Okay, Edward's son, Edward II, uh, total incompetent idiot, um, but ushers it, you know, his father knows this, his father knows this, he sees it, they have these furious rows towards the end of his life, um, he's the youngest of 300 children that Edward has, um, and is, it's hard to, just, it's hard to express how incompetent and, and useless a king Edward II is. I mean, lots of people, like John, will try and, and revise Edward's reputation, but um, a king who understands nothing of the business of kingship, nothing of the principles of Magna Carta, nothing of the outward duties of, of kingship, uh, and ushers in this terrible age of, of 20 years of extreme violence uh, in which... Not only doing, does, does England lose a, a number of um, very humiliating battles, including Bannockburn, there are also furious wars between Edward and his cousin, Thomas of Lancaster, over Edward's favouritism of men like Piers Gaveston and Hugh Dispenser. Um, and Edward is the first of the Plantagenets to be forced to abdicate. He's forced to abdicate by his wife and Roger Mortimer, who escaped from, from the Tower in 1323, who is his wife's lover, and they place onto the throne... Edward III, who's a young boy at the time. Now, Edward III is one of the great heroes of English kingship. Uh, Ian Mortimer, the historian who's written a very good biography of Edward, estimates that among people of English descent, somewhere between 80 and 95% of us, most of us here, I think, uh, are descended, have Edward's blood in us, because this huge brood of children... Um, I'm selling you the Plantagenets, right? We are them. Um, uh, huge brood of children, but he, he and begins the Hundred Years' War with France. Um, uh, martial kingship is, is the heart of, of Edward's reign. Uh, establishes the Order of the Garter. This is his picture from the Garter book. You know. You'll notice the crowns okay, of his ancestors. Quite simple. Quite simple. And then this, less simple. Uh, pageantry, outward display, uh, all of these things were, that were understood and, and beloved of Henry III are, are there in Edward III, but he's a great soldier and he has great allies as well, uh, particularly Henry Grosmont, first Duke of Lancaster, and uh, Edward's eldest son, Edward the Black Prince, um, and together they win some of these famous victories at sea and on land of the Hundred Years' War and establish English, English dominance over France, capture the French king at Poitiers. Um, and really bring back to England this sense of uh, military achievement. He's also a, a great lawyer, um, not a great lawyer personally, but he employs lawyers and he understands the relationship between um, 
a war state and a law state, and uh, you have under Edward's reign the establishment of, of JPs, uh, new systems of, of government in the shires. Um, very capable king. And the last of the Plantagenets in this part of history is Richard II, Edward's grandson, the Black Prince's son. Uh, and we see, uh, we see Richard here as Richard pretty much saw himself, which was, uh, how do you describe it? I mean, he's being presented, we can't see on the other side, this is Walton Diptych, we can't see on the other side is, is uh, the Virgin Mary, which, uh, whom Richard is being presented to by St. Edmund the Martyr, Edward the Confessor, and John the Baptist. Um, Richard has a fairly grandiose view of English kingship. Um, again, not a very capable king, um, in, in very difficult circumstances, admittedly. Uh, inherits the throne as a boy, um, and then has to deal, you know, he's here as a, only a young lad when the Peasants' Revolt breaks out, and it, it, some really traumatic events in his childhood, um, which add up to a very damaged, paranoid, suspicious, um, passive-aggressive king who, would get, who has no conception of the, the idea of public authority, sees kingship as a, as a purely private office, and is eventually, after much tribulation and a, a period of, t of tyranny between 1397 and 1999, deposed by his cousin, Henry Bolingbroke, who becomes Henry IV. Um, what's interesting about the Wilton Diptych, and there's lots of interesting things about it, but one of them, because as I said to you, the Plantagenets don't call themselves Plantagenets. Uh, no one goes around calling themselves the Plantagenets until the 1460s. But I've sort of tried to zoom in in this very grainy um, zoom of Richard's collar here. This is a collar of Broomscod, which is the emblem of Charles VI, who at this point or around then is, is, is Richard's father-in-law, the King of France. But it's also the seed pod of the... The, the, the broom plant, and, and broom blossom was what Geoffrey Plantagenet, the very first of the dynasty, used to wear in his hair. And I wonder, as well as a sort of nod to his father-in-law, or rather I think Richard here is harking back to his Plantagenet roots. He was a great student of history, as we've said, a student of how kings had, had been hard done by. And yet he has a sense of dynastic continuity. It's, this is a little nod here to the fact that he is the eighth generation of this great royal family, um, ironically, the last of that dynasty. So, I want to talk a little, a little bit more thematically. Um, why the Plantagenets matter so much? That was important, not very potted history of the dynasty. Um, during the Plantagenet years, England's relations with its neighbours are set, and set in ways that largely have endured. The Plantagenets come from what we'd now call France. And this is Henry II's empire. This is the empire uh, to about the end of Henry II's reign, 1187. So you see we have Normandy and Anjou, uh, we have Aquitaine, Duchy of Brittany is attached to this great continental empire. We have England, and an authority which stretches into Wales. Um, we have some parts of Ireland which have been uh, superficially subdued. This is an absolutely vast empire. Henry spends most of his time in France because there are constant border wars with the kings of France who own a tiny bit of land about not much bigger than Paris, the Ile de France. Um, 
there are constant wars with the barons, and Henry has to somehow negotiate. This is, this is France at the end of uh, Edward III's reign, the end of the Hundred Years' War, when um, Edward has won back a great deal of land that's lost, because almost all of this, after Henry, after Richard I's reign, is lost. So you end up with a tiny strip around Gascony, around Bordeaux, which is answerable to the King, king of England, and only, only just about answerable at that. Uh, a little bit more is won back, and this is um, 1360, Treaty of Brittany. More will be, won, will be won back under Henry V, and then it'll all sort of shrink away again under Henry VI. So you, you have, during the Plantagenet years, a sort of a constant sort of struggle to regain the lands that were lost from this great empire. And one of the effects of this struggle is to begin to define English kingship as English. And it's not just authority, you know, this is not the Dukes of Normandy who are, um, who are made somehow grander by having a crown that comes from up there. These are kings who spend most of their time in England, although they all take the cross and say they're going to go off to the Holy Land, only Edward I actually does. They spend most of their time in England, or nearby, in Wales or Scotland, or occasionally in, in John and, and Richard II's case, they're the only kings who actually go to Ireland. Uh, and they come over to try and fight the French. And so you start to have this, this great rivalry between the two kings. The kings of, kings of England are the enemies of the kings of France, and, and they are defined in opposition to one another. And this last, obviously, this reaches the sort of, its apogee really under Henry V, who who's, hits the, sort of the height of English success in the Hundred Years' War, a little after our period. Um, but when you look at Henry VIII, Henry VIII's idol is Henry V. Henry VIII wants to, wants to rekindle the aspects of the Hundred Years' War, go out and sort of puff his chest out and, uh, and dominate over France. And this idea of the antagonism between the kings of England and, and kings of France has developed over the 250 years of Plantagenet rule. Now, there are similar stories with England's immediate neighbours. Now, this is Adrian IV. Adrian IV, the only Englishman ever to sit on St Peter's throne, the only English pope. And he was, an he was pope at around the same time that Henry II was king of England. And Adrian granted to Henry in 1155 the bull Laudabilita, which, uh, which suppose, okay, there's arguments about Laudabilita. We think, so far as we can tell, that Laudabilita says to Henry, you can go and conquer Ireland, it's, it's a laudable thing, it's a good thing for you to do, to go over to Ireland and, um, and sort of, you know, get these savages thinking like proper right-thinking Christians. And so Henry never really kind of acts on it, he goes off to Ireland in 1171 after the Becket controversy. Um, but this is the beginning, and this is the beginning of an idea that English kings have, that, that the, the various kings and lords of Ireland should be subject to English authority. Not many of the Plantagenets actually go and do much about this. John goes to Ireland with markedly little success. Um, Richard II goes to Ireland with some success, although when he comes back he's deposed, so it's not that successful. But there is the beginning in the 12th century, under Henry II, of this idea that the English should lord it over the Irish. And this is a story which has many, many, many twists and turns. And I'm not going to be so crass as to say the whole Irish question begins in the Plantagenet years, but its seed is there. Its seed is in Lordabilita, and there are still quite serious arguments about Lordabilita <laughs> today. Okay, so that's Ireland, in Wales. We talked a little bit about Wales. 
This is Carnarvon Castle, one of this huge ring of castles. Uh, this is the furthest west, uh, southwest. Huge ring of castles built mainly around Snowdonia by Edward I to stamp English authority over Wales. Um, fed up with fed up with some kings going into Wales, conquering a bit, and then being driven back by rebellions. That very difficult terrain. So he spent vast sums of money on a war of conquest in 1282 to 1283, killed as many of the Welsh as he could, cut huge roads through the forests, which are very dangerous to send an army through, and built this unbelievable ring of castles, completely transformed the northern Welsh landscape. You know, these can be seen for miles and miles and miles around as potent symbols of English aggression, English might, English authority. Statue of Rudland, 1283 or four. Uh, Statue of Rudland imposes in 1284 imposes English systems of law and government over Wales. And that's the beginning, as I've said earlier, of a story of English aggression towards Wales and the attempt to, to stamp English authority onto Wales. Um, this becomes much more severe after, slightly after our period under Henry IV, after Glendower's rebellion. But there it is, unmistakably, um, with Edward I, the, the, the beginnings of this, this mutual hostility um, between England and Wales, which is manifested in, in physical, visible English power over Wales. Okay, here's the stone scone. That's the coronation chair in um, Westminster Abbey. Uh, the stone, as I've said, thank you, Tony Blair, is no longer there. It's up in, up in Scotland now. Um, I think it gets brought down for the coronation, I think. Um, it's, it's a similar story. It's a mirror story to what we have in, in Wales, with the exception that the English kings never managed to conquer Scotland. And that is, you know, the, the, 1603 is in that sense more important than anything that happens under Edward I. But this is the beginning of the story of, you know, there were fairly cordial relations between English kings and Scottish kings, particularly under Henry I, you know, before our period, and under Henry II, the Scottish earls, the Scottish kings were earls of Huntingdon, they were occasionally they would occasionally fight English armies, you know, the Siege of Toulouse in um, 1159. Uh, the Scottish king comes down and fights for the English. Uh, there, there are reasonably cordial relations between these two neighbours, and that ended, absolutely ended, under uh, Edward I. Um, the old alliance is born, Scot the Scots ally with the French, and that pretty much is the way it stayed. Um, ever since. And, and as I say, we will, we will find out in a couple of years' time whether this story of, of relations between e England and Scotland, which began under the Plantagenets, is about to end. If we look at the majesty of kingship, the outward symbols of kingship, this, this too is something that, that develops so profoundly under the Plantagenets. This is the Confessor's tomb. This is the tomb um, I think commissioned by Henry III, which is in Westminster Abbey. It's the heart of the Abbey. <coughs> Uh, around it are buried numerous kings and queens of England. Um, most of the Plantagenets after Henry III are buried in Westminster. Um, Henry III is there, Edward I is there, Edward III and Richard II are all there. The only one who's not is uh, Edward II, who was so ghastly they kept him in Gloucester, didn't want him anywhere near the place. Um, good thing too. Uh, so. The majesty of English kingship really begins to develop under, under Henry III and is symbolised in this, this mausoleum um, to kingship which, which grows up in Westminster. On the flip side of that you have Windsor. And Windsor, although has been massively developed, Edward IV and Henry VII I think, um, Windsor is the other spiritual home of English kingship and this too, this is intimately 
associated with Edward III and his pal here, Henry Grotemont. Again, big hat. Um, still wear these. This is the Order of the Garter robes. But Windsor, again, the, you know, the, the establishment of the Order of the Garter in 1348 is, is the ceremonial attachment of martial values and, and soldierly values to, to, uh, to royalty. Um, under Richard II, you have a sort of explosion in the kind of finery of English kingship. The, the four-time mayor of London, Dick Whittington, the sort of great cloth merchant of his day, sells thousands and thousands of pounds worth of fine cloth imported from Vigina um, to the English court. Uh, Richard loves the sort of finery and, the, and, and the, the majesty. He's the first English king to import the term, your majesty. You don't call him my lord or, or, or your grace. It's your majesty. He likes to sort of sit in his chair and stare around at people. And, and there's a great description of him um, when he goes a bit mad towards the end of his reign, sitting on his throne and after dinner sort of staring around. And if his eyes fell upon you, you'd have to kneel. But, uh, but at the same time, he brings to kingship this extraordinary sense of, um, of majesty, might, outward show. There are... He preempts, particularly Henry VIII in, in those ways, but also the Stuart kings, you know. And, it, look, if you, watch the, um, if you watch the Jubilee celebrations, as I say, in a couple of weeks' time, you will see the same sense of grandeur and, and power and might. I mean, this could almost be a sort of Annie Leibovitz photo of Elizabeth II, I, I always think. He's, this is the Westminster portrait of Richard II. He sets that template for a majestic kingship. Um, we also have institution and state building, and th this, is, this is quite important. Under Henry II, um, the system of uh, a bureaucratic system of government is established. The writ becomes the staple of government. You know, it's a process-driven government that operates independently from the king. Um, we have a judiciary that becomes an illegal... This is a, a judge here. Uh, and a legal profession that separates from, from the office of the king. We have the Exchequer, which becomes an institution. It's, the, it's, it's where the money that's owed to the king is counted out, uh, on, literally on a black and white board, the Exchequer. The financial aspect of kingship, the legal aspect of kingship, the bureaucratic as aspect of kingship under the Plantagenets uh, becomes separated from the person of the king, and you really have the beginnings of, of um, a bureaucratic state. And then there's Parliament. And from the end of the 13th century, you start to have parliaments meeting regularly. Parliament is still an occasion, it's not an institution, but it does have a sense of its own importance. Uh, and it, this, this develops throughout the period. So, um, you know, in Henry III's reign, Parliament is, is a meeting of the great men of the realm to thrash out um, arguments in government. By the time you get to Richard II's reign, Parliament is in in its two houses of Lords and Commons, and the Commons in particular have a, a very, very developed sense of their own importance. And they're impeaching ministers, um, they're executing the King's friends, and they are uh, finally deposing the King himself. Um, we've talked a bit about Magna Carta. Magna Carta is the, is the treaty that ends John's reign. Throughout the 13th century, it becomes symbolic of English liberty and the idea the King should behave should obey his own law. Simon de Montfort, who's here being sort of hacked to bits at the Battle of Evesham, is somebody who, who pushes the principles of Magna Carta onto Henry III. But by the time we get to the 14th century, the principles that the government or the king's government should be operating according to their own law have percolated down to village level. I spoke at the beginning of Richard II looking out from the tower and seeing his people amassed below him. They're calling his name, but they're trying to purge his government. These are ordinary people who are... <coughs> 
interacting with the ideas of, that are in Magna Carta. And of course, you know, Henry, Henry Bolingbroke, as we know, takes these ideas and, and uses them to depose Richard. That was Russell Crowe. Um, I'm running out of time, so I just want to talk a little bit about the myths and legends that come up in the Plantagenet years, and they've been so enduring. You know, I talk, we talk about the ideas of justice in Magna Carta and, and legal system. These are all embodied in Robin Hood and the Outlaw stories, which developed from the mid-13th century, certainly by the 14th century. People are talking about Robin Hood and listening to the ballads of Robin Hood. Um, thankfully, they don't have Russell at that point. Uh, but Robin Hood is not alone. We've also got the myth of Arthur, which I've spoken about under Edward I. There was this, this rise in the belief of a united Britain. Well, this coincides with the incredible fashion fashionability, the fashionable nature of, uh, of Arthurian legend. And there's round tables being held, and people go on honeymoon or holiday to Glastonbury Abbey to look at the supposed remains of Arthur and Guinevere. All of this, which, is, you know, which comes out of, of Plantagenet England. St George, patron saint, uh, coincides with, the, with Edward III and the Order of the Garter. Um, Edward III marches under St George's Cross, and, and you have a finally a national military saint who we know is still incredibly important in English identity today. Thomas Beckett, another we've talked about a little bit, another national saint, although he is one who is pretty much obliterated from national memory, certainly in terms of his sainthood under Henry under the Reformation. Um, his, his shrine, which was the premier tourist destination in England. Uh, is, is not looked upon too kindly by Henry VIII and it's destroyed and the bones are either burned or thrown in a creek. And, uh, accounts vary. And then finally we have the sort of growth of vernacular literature. Chaucer, but it's not just Chaucer. You know, Canterbury Tales is, is the sort of first great work of English poetry and literature. And, and it comes out of this, this period... At the end of the 14th century, from the 1360s onward, English becomes the language of, uh, of, uh, of Parliament, of law courts. Edward III passed a law saying you can use the statute of pleading. You must use English in law courts and in Parliament. And this coincides with it, it, people taking it seriously as a language of poetry and of art. And as well as Chaucer, you have Langland and Gower and the Gawain poet. So, in conclusion, I'm not going to say that everything... <laughs> we now think of as Englishness develops in the Plantagenet years. That would, be, that would be absurd. But so much of it does. And there is so much more to these great kings who are sometimes parodied. And I've tried, I hope I've, in, in some cases, not John, obviously, tried to give you a more um, rounded view of the, the kings who, who made England in, in these 250 years. But there's so much more. There's more than the, you know, the heads being lopped off and red-hot pokers up bottoms and so forth. There is more than, than the sort of Game of Thrones idea to medieval kingship. And in fact, I think, much as I love the Tudors, and I know Susanna's going to give you a wonderful lecture about them in a minute, much as I adore them, I think there's so much to be said for the Plantagenets as the founding dynasty in English history. Thank you very much. We don't always realise just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest 
Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger, talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone, or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash history extra. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. That was Dan Jones. Dan's book, The Plantagenets, The Kings Who Made England, was published this year by Harper Press. And that lecture was organised in association with historic royal palaces who run the Tower of London, Hampton Court, Kew Palace and other royal venues. You can find out more about the organisation at hrp.org.uk. And we've got plenty more events coming up, including a First World War Day this very Sunday at the M Shed in Bristol. You can still get yourself a ticket for that. You'll find details at historyextra.com forward slash events. And that's about all for this episode. Next week, we'll be back in the Tower of London to hear Susanna Lipscomb on the Tudors. In the meantime, do have a look at our website, historyextra.com, where you'll find all manner of great content. And you can, of course, keep in touch with us on Twitter and Facebook as well. This History Extra podcast was recorded at the Tower of London and produced in Bristol by Dave Gibson. between a Chinese jet and an American spy plane. He came and rammed into our left wing. With relations increasingly strained, what are the chances of things spinning out of control? The Western world was asleep. I'm Gordon Carrera. I'll be exploring the friction in this most important of relationships and asking, has the West taken its eye off the ball? You cannot ignore China. From BBC Radio 4, this is Shadow War, China and the West. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.